I invite you to turn with me to your Bibles. First of all, the Psalm 95. We've just sung of that. I want to read at least part of that in connection with our text of this morning. I want to read <coughs> the verse 7b to the end of the uh, Psalm 7b. <coughs> If your Bible is the same as mine, then you'll see that they've placed a bit of a break there between the first part of verse 7 and verse 8, and they've connected the last part of verse 7 with verse 8. I want to begin to read there today, where it says today. And so today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. And so I swore in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest thus far. Would you then turn with me to the prophet Jeremiah? Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 36. I want to read the 20, verse 20 through to the end of the chapter Jeremiah, right after the book of Isaiah. Jeremiah chapter 36. I want to begin to read with verse 20. And we hear the word of God as follows. This is the word of the Lord. Then they went to the king and into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. I will explain most of this to you in the sermon. And so the king sent Jehudai to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishama, the scribe's, the scribe's chamber. And Jehudi read it in the hearing of the king and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. And now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehudi had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it into the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Nevertheless, Elnathan, Deliah, and Gemariah implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Ezreal, and Shalemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. <clears throat> Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, Take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah had burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here. Uh, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, 
He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. And I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them, but they did not heed. Then Jeremiah took another scroll, gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, that entire passage will make up the words of our text of this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, The historical setting of our text places us in the last year of the glory of Judah. For many years, Judah had enjoyed a place of honor among the nations, but now finally, she too was following in the paths of the other ten tribes, and God was withholding his blessing. In fact, had she listened, had had Judah listened with the ears of faith, she would have been able to hear the approaching hoofbeats of God's impending judgment upon her. Scripture teaches us that the last kings of Judah, including Jehoiakim of our text, they were little more than puppets in the hands of the kings of Babylon and Egypt. Rather than walking and leading in the way of the Lord, rather than standing strong, standing in the breach for God's people, rather than leading God's people, rather than walking and leading in the way and the will of Israel's God, we learn that Judah's kings were instrumental in leading in the way of ungodliness. And of the last four kings of Judah, however, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim of our text, bears the unique distinction of being among the most ungodliest of all. From the Bible, we learn that he was a cruel and a heartless king who bled God's people dry in order to satisfy the demands of Egypt, God's enemy. And we know that he himself had an elaborate palace constructed to satisfy his own vanity. And further, we know that he was not even averse to shedding the innocent blood of his own people. And correctly do we hear prophesied of him in Jeremiah 22, and I want to quote a few verses there, where the Lord writes, Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his chambers by injustice, who uses his neighbor's service without wages and gives him nothing for his work, who says, I will build myself a wide house with spacious chambers and cut out windows for it, paneling it with cedar and painting it with vermilion. Shall you reign because you enclose yourself with cedar? Your eyes and your heart are for nothing but your covetousness, for the shedding of innocent blood and the practicing oppression and violence. And therefore, listen carefully, therefore says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, therefore concerning Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah, they shall not lament for him, saying, Alas, master, or alas, his glory. He shall be buried with the burial of a donkey dragged and cast out beyond the gates of Jerusalem. What a prophecy. What a damning indictment upon him. Over and over and over again, Jehoiakim had been warned and called to repentance by the word of God, but he had continued to despise it until at last the prophecy concerning his unceremonious death was fulfilled. And now it is here in our text of this morning that we are taught of one 
such opportunity. This is an opportunity divinely given. In other words, an opportunity given by God for, to once again for him to repent and to return to God. But tragically, we learn that again, it, again, he hardens his heart. And then finally, scripture teaches us of the consequences of his repeated contempt for the word of God. And so I want to administer God's word to you this morning using as my theme Jehoiakim's Jehoiakim's contempt for God's word. Jehoiakim's contempt for God's word. We want to see, first of all, the occasion of his sin. In the second place, we want to be instructed in the content of his sin. And finally, we want to see the consequences of the sin of contempt. So Jehoiakim's contempt for the word of God, the occasion of the sin, the content of the sin, and the consequence of his sin. Congregation, Jeremiah had received a divine command. God had commanded him to commit all of his prophecies to writing, beginning at the time of his calling as a prophet, up to and including the fourth year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, he was commanded to write it all down, write it all down on paper. And once again, Jehoiakim was to be confronted with God's promise of judgment if he did not change his ways. Once more, God graciously gives opportunity to have his word heard by Jehoiakim in order, in order to bring him and through him the entire nation of Judah to repentance. Up until now, both the king and the people had failed to listen to the Lord, and now God instructs Jeremiah to put it in writing. And enlisting the help of a certain Baruch, the scribe, he faithfully records the prophecies of God's judgment against Judah. And we learn that Baruch reads them to the people who had gathered themselves together to observe a day of fasting. As a little aside, it's interesting to note they were observing a day of fasting. So in other words, they were worshiping. They observed the ordinances of God. They went through all the emotions, if you will, but it was all a facade. Their true worship of the Lord was not in their hearts. And so once again, Jehoiakim and Judah are reminded that unless a conscious change is made, the gathering storm clouds of judgment will soon explode into peals of lightning and thunder all around them. And now as we read the text, we learn that among the hearers, there was a certain Micaiah, who apparently was greatly disturbed by the words that were read to them. The word was first of all read to the people. We read they were gathered together to fast, and they were, they, the word was read to them first. And a certain Micaiah was greatly disturbed by the words that were read to him, and he rushed to the king's scribes and to the members of the king's court, and he conveyed all that he had heard to them. And they, in turn, they were persuaded to call Baruch in order that they could hear with their own ears the prophecies that had been told to, the, to, to, to Judah. And they wanted to hear now of the prophecies against Judah. They wanted to hear it for themselves. It would seem then that, that God's threat of judgment left a deep impression upon the sages, all of the wise people in the king's palace, for we read that they deemed it necessary to inform King Jehoiakim of what had been revealed to them from the writings of the prophet Jeremiah. And we read that Jehoiakim is presently residing in his winter palace. <clears throat> also in Palestine, the winters could be bitter and fires were needed to provide warmth. 
And so apparently Jehoiakim was warming himself by a fireplace when the, the entourage entered. And then we read that one of the rulers, namely Jehudai, begins to read from that scroll, while the others gathered around, eagerly waiting to see the king's reaction. And his response was not long in coming. We read that as Jehudai had read three or four columns, Jehoiakim gets up out of his chair, he grabs the scroll and he cuts the scroll with a knife and casts it into the fire. And he continues bit by bit as Jehudai continues to read. Piece by piece, page by page, bit by bit, if you will, he cuts it up and he throws God's word in the glowing coals and embers until the entire scroll had been destroyed. People of God, what was it now that led him to such an extreme response? What occasioned him to treat God's word in that fashion? Was there perhaps doubt in his mind of the truthfulness of that word? Did he think maybe the word was wrong? That it was not an accurate, accurate reflection of the word of God? Could it be perhaps that he simply would not believe the words? Could it be perhaps his contempt for Jeremiah personally that caused him to respond with such a vengeance towards the message that Jeremiah brought. No, no, the cause of his conduct must be sought much deeper than that. In fact, it was the truthfulness of the written word that offended him. God's word identified him and his nation for what they were, sinful, disobedient, rebellious, God's word hammered and railed against Jehoiakim's own sinfulness and, and, and it was that truth that infuriated him and stuck in his craw, if you will, and it was God's own accusing finger pointing at him personally that he could not, that he would not tolerate. God's word exposed his sinfulness and that Jehoiakim refused to hear and therefore he was determined to destroy the word of God. That point needs to be clear to us in this context this morning. You see, if Jeremiah's prophecies would have been different, if they would have prophesied good things, if Jeremiah would have predicted peace and prosperity for king and nation, then also Jehoiakim's response would have been so far different. Then the scroll would in all likelihood have been held in honor and safety, safely stored with the, with the other archives of the king's court. Had the written word prophesied good things for king and nation, then the human authors would have been praised and, and raised to positions of honor. But no, as it was, Jeremiah and Baruch had to actually literally hide themselves in anticipation of the king's wrath. We read that the Lord God hid them from the wrath of of Jehoiakim. That is now a thumbnail sketch of the drama that was being played out there in Palestine. My dear precious people of God gathered with me here in Salem this morning, not much has changed, has it? To be praised and stroked is always appreciated, but to have our sin and shame exposed to be chastised, and then to be threatened with judgment for our wickedness, that doesn't sit well with us. And then we tend to go on the defensive. That's our human nature, our fallen human nature. 
And when we are confronted with our own sin by nature, we are inclined to hostility, and so too with Jehoiakim. God's word exposed the condition of his heart. God's word laid bare Jehoiakim's misspent, disobedient life, and it was that truth that precipitated his fury. The word of the Lord, as it came to Jehoiakim here in our text of this morning, it had a particular message for him, namely the impending judgment upon him and upon his nation as consequence of Jehoiakim's sin. And it is in the same way that his word comes to us each time again. God's word does not stroke us. God's word does not commend us. No, it exposes our sin. It strips us of our pretension and our sanctimonious self-righteousness. And it chastises us, calling us to repentance. And then it threatens us with impending judgment if we refuse to confess our sin. And if we refuse to seek forgiveness at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Mighty people, think seriously of this with me for a moment. When the painful, when that painful word of God confronts us, as long as that sinfulness and judgment is spoken of in general terms to all people, or even to all people in the congregation, then we still find that word acceptable and even palatable. Oh, we can even be found to nodding our heads in agreement and we tend to say, right on, Domine. When the rebuke is brought in generalities, it does not offend us at all. For after all, we've been taught already in our very youth that all of mankind has sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And I'm, I'm willing to share in that. And therefore, judgment comes to all. And a general rebuke in sweeping and universal terms we find good and necessary bothers us not at all. However, when the word of God becomes personal and specific, when it is directed to us personally and declares to us personally that we ourselves in a particular way are found to be sinful in the sight of God, then the tendency, like Jehoiakim, is to become defensive. And rather than to submitting in humility to the word, we defiantly reject the message and the messenger. Walk with me for a few moments as we work this out together. When, for example, we personally harbor animosity toward another then God's word teaches us that whoever hates his brother is guilty of murder, and no murderer will inherit the kingdom. How do we respond? Or if we know in our hearts that we've gossiped about or slandered a brother or a sister, and then we, we hear God's law on Sunday morning condemning us personally for that, how do we respond? Or if you are aware that you have dealt unjustly or dishonestly with your neighbor or a brother. And then God's word declares heaven's portals to be closed to you. How do you respond? Or if you know yourself to give in to temptations of the flesh and thought or in deed. And, and God's word confronts you with the admonition that no adulterer or unchaste person. And I would add into that category also pornography that no such unchaste person shall inherit eternal life. How do you then respond if you are guilty? 
or when you are reminded from the word of God that you are not to neglect meeting with God's people for worship on the Lord's day and your pew is often left unattended especially when called by the elders for a second time on the Lord's day and God threatens you with judgment how do you respond that's the question before us here in this context And in all such situations, and you can multiply those examples a thousand times for yourself, but when God's word speaks to us personally and demands from you and from me personally, each time again a response, when God's word becomes a sharp two-edged sword directed at our own individual hearts, how do you respond? And remember with me now that the word of God is a double-edged sword. It separates the wheat from the chaff. It separates the sheep from the goats. And so then when, when it comes to us and to warn us of our own failure and our sin, when we then refuse to confess and repent of it, then the word of God, and especially the preached word of God, then does to us personally the same as it did to the mighty king of the text. It strips away all of our pretension and our sanctimonious self-righteousness. It exposes our sinfulness and it declares judgment upon us personally. And it is at that precise moment that the question comes to you and to me, what now will you do with the word of God? And then people got their only two options open to us. Firstly, we can return to God. We can confess and acknowledge our guilt and cry out to him for forgiveness and mercy. We can offer him our our broken hearts and our contrite spirit. And we can humble ourselves deeply over over the sin exposed by his word and spirit. And we we can plead with him for Jesus' sake not to deal with us according to our iniquity. And that way, the way of repentance was open to Jehoiakim. It's open also to us. When God's word speaks to us of our sin, threatening judgment upon it, then God's purpose is not to drive us to hopeless despair, but to drive us to our knees at Golgotha. Oh, the word does not gloss over sin and its wound can be extremely painful. But God's purpose is to call us to repentance in order to draw us back into fellowship with him. And when such a road, when such a road is taken, then God's word also assures us that he does not deal with us according to our sin. He himself then will comfort us with the assurance that there is forgiveness for all our sin in the precious blood of the lamb shed on Calvary's hill. But another response is also possible. God's word can and does bring about anger, resistance, and rejection. And that's what we saw coming from the heart of King Jehoiakim. You see, just as God's word can bring humble confession and repentance, it also brings denial and defiance. That double-edged sword either drives us to our knees at the cross or it drives us out the door. It can be no other way. Just as, just as the cross of Christ is a source of glory for one, it's also an offense to another. It's as Isaiah writes, God's word never hear me well. God's word never returns empty or void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which God has sent it. God's word demands and creates a response. 
One will bend his knee, the other will clench his fist. It hardens and it softens. It can be no other way. The word of God, each time it comes to you, demands a response. Even to not respond is a response in unbelief. Happy is he, blessed is he, truly blessed is he who through the word has recognized his sin and then flees with it to the cross of Jesus Christ. Blessed is he, blessed is he, happy is he who has been broken, who has been shattered by the power of the word, but who has also in that word found healing and reconciliation and restoration. Blessed is he who in that same word has found judgment and comfort for a broken and a contrite heart. According to our text, it is obvious that Jehoiakim was not among those who sought healing in the power of the word. To the contrary, his actions demonstrated a vile and a blatant contempt for God's word. His sin was of the utmost seriousness. His sin was not an explosion of anger. It's not that he just snapped for a moment. It was not a fit of rage, if you will. Would that it were so. In those kinds of cases, usually genuine sorrow follows. No, his sin, his sin was to grieve the very spirit of God. We do not read that he burned three or four pieces and then had second thoughts and regretted it. No, we read he burned it all. But section by section, bit by bit, piece by piece, little bit by little bit, not in a violent rage, but in quiet determination, systematically and methodically, he demonstrated his contempt for the word of God. You see, the word of God had pierced his very soul, and yet we read he tore not his garments in repentance. No, he tore up the word of God to his own destruction. People of God, we have here before us a blatant and a conscious contempt for God's word by someone who knew God's word and consequently also knew better. We need to understand this. It is extremely important for us to keep in mind that Jehoiakim was no stranger to the scriptures. We need to remember that Jehoiakim was raised in a godly home by pious parents. Of his father Josiah, it is written that at, his tender, at a tender age, he began to serve the Lord and he walked in the footsteps of his father David, neither wandering to the right or to the left. Josiah, Jehoiakim's own father, had been the king who had returned Israel to her God. And so obviously then Jehoiakim would have had previous contact with God's word and he would have had a working knowledge of God's will for his life. God's word was not foreign to him. No, rather he had been taught already in his youth of covenant blessing and of covenant responsibility. In other words, congregation, he was born and raised in the covenant. And it's important that we understand that. What we see here, congregation, is a classic example of one who, although born in the covenant, rejects and squanders the covenant of blessings because he refuses to keep his covenant obligations. What must be clear to us in this context is that Jehoiakim's defiant action was not an incident of a momentary rage or a falling into sin through weakness. No, it was that final act 
It was the epitome, the ultimate defiance in this act of burning God's word was his final crowning. It was, it was if I may say it this way, it was the icing on the cake of a lifelong process of hardening his heart and rejecting the promises of the covenant. Congregation, capture this with me then. The message has a warning for, for, for us. It has a warning, first of all, for the church of Jesus Christ. It comes as a warning, first of all, especially to those who are children of the covenant. To those who may thank God that they were born of godly parents and in a home where, where God's word was honored. People God, we cannot adequately express what a tremendous privilege it is to be born in such a home. However, we must not make the mistake of believing that by virtue of being born in the covenant, that it is therefore impossible for us to imitate the tragic sin and fatal sin of Jehoiakim. The word of God speaks every Sunday again. It's coming to you right at this very moment. But the word of God comes to you every Sunday again. It comes to a covenant people. It comes to us not only in broad general terms. But also it comes specifically. It addresses us personally. It exposes our personal sin. And cries out to us. Thou art the man. You are the guilty one. And it can also happen to us that when we, we have been stripped by that word, it can happen that when God's word exposes our specific and personal sin, that we set our face against that indictment and we refuse to bend our knee. Are we then not also guilty of the same sin as Jehoiakim? Well, fortunately not yet. But then the first step has indeed been taken. People God, sin can have such a powerful influence in our lives. There are in our lives so often specific personal sins that we are consciously aware of and perhaps even cherish in our hearts. And when then God's word exposes that sin and passes judgment on it, at that precise moment, we are confronted with a crisis then we are called to make a conscious decision. As with Jehoiakim, two options are open to us. On the one hand, we can bow before that word. We can submit to his judgment. We can plead for God's grace and forgiveness, and we shall receive it. Or we can piously declare that the indictment is not meant for us, and we can refuse to accept God's righteous judgment upon us. That was the choice confronting Jehoiakim. Either acknowledge sin and allow God to bless him or continue to nurture his sin and by so doing show his contempt for the word of God. And he chose the latter. What now will you do with the word of God as it came to you this morning? Congregation, people of God, especially to our young people of God, I need to say here in this context, the sin of Jehoiakim, it was the ultimate and the final act of a long process. Step by step, piece by piece, bit by bit, he had hardened his heart over the years. He was born in the covenant. He had been taught of the way of the Lord at his mother's knee. 
He had been born in a Christian home. He had been instructed by godly parents, probably went through all the motions. In fact, we could say, to use the vernacular of today, we could say he went to catechism and to Christian schools, and yet he had treated it all with a cool indifference and finally with a blatant contempt. It's a process, starting with indifference, which out of necessity leads to defiance and finally will culminate in hostility and contempt. And people have got, the sin doesn't start with a burning of the Bible. I can almost hear you saying, well, Domini, that's, it's an interesting story you've given us, but, but we're not guilty of burning our Bibles. As a matter of fact, our Bibles have a prominent place in our homes, in our churches. But it doesn't start with the burning of the Bible. It doesn't begin with a rejection of God's word in its entirety. No. Even today, it is a process beginning with tiny, seemingly insignificant infractions. It can begin by allowing, for instance, your children to skip catechism in order to study for a school exam or to play in a hockey tournament. It can begin by staying home from church for invalid reasons. It can begin by skipping family and personal devotions. It can begin by failing to properly observe the Sabbath day. It can begin by choosing illegitimate modes of entertainment. It can begin by choosing illegitimate modes of dress. It can begin by refusing to give up ungodly friends or worse, by choosing dating partners who do not walk with us in the ways of the Lord. And all of these things, and you can yourself add to this list, all of these things are steps, small, seemingly insignificant steps in a process that will culminate culminate in a final contempt for all of God's word. It is a making of conscious decisions to reject God's word. It is a process which begins with it, just as it did with Jehoiakim, it brings with it death. (coughs) Eternal death. Guard against that sin. The consequences are horrible and eternal. Plead for God to grant his Holy Spirit to teach us more and more to pray, not my will, Father, but may thy will be done also by me all of my life. Teach me, Father, to hate sin more and more and to flee from it. Congregation Jehoiakim sought to burn God's word. How foolish. There is no fire on this earth that is able to destroy the living word of God. We read in our text that another scroll is written containing the same words as before. God's word stands firm. Man can strive against it. He can trample it underfoot. He can cast it in the fire. Inquisitions, persecutions can be organized, but all of it will be in vain. Governments will rail against it, but God's word stands firm. All of his word will be fulfilled, his promise of blessing and his promise of curse. Not one jot or tittle of his word will pass away. And that was the experience of Jehoiakim. After he has burned the scroll, that which was prophesied about him came to pass. No son of Jehoiakim would inherit the throne of David. 
and upon his death his own lifeless body would be unceremoniously cast aside outside of the city of Jerusalem and no one would mourn him. God's promise of judgment stood secure. God's word stood, stood firm. The consequence of Jehoiakim's decision brought with it God's judgment upon him. Another choice had been open to him. Had he acknowledged his sin, God's grace would have been sufficient for him. And yet as it was, he chose consciously with his eyes wide open to defy the word of God. Consciously, systematically, step by step, bit by bit, piece by piece, he had hardened his heart and refused to kneel at the foot of the cross. And shortly thereafter, the Chaldeans invaded Jerusalem, and apparently Jehoiakim is murdered, and no honorable burial is possible. God's word stood firm. He will not be mocked. What a man sows, that he will also reap. Our text is evidence of that this morning. People of God, let it be a warning to us all. Any rejection or willful disobedience to any one of God's commandments, no matter how insignificant it would seem to us, is another further step in the process of hardening our hearts. A further step which will ultimately result in contempt for all of the word of God. And yet, and yet, and yet, God does not leave us in despair without hope. When we confess our sin and when we flee to the cross of Jesus at Golgotha, then God assures us that the judgment has already been borne by God's own Christ and that his precious blood has washed white the robes of all of those who have sought and found salvation at the foot of the cross. To all of those the Father himself promises to wipe away every tear, every sin penitently confessed is forgiven in his blood. God himself removes them and remembers them no more. And in our place, Christ has stood condemned and has already borne the wrath of God's judgment. His witness will see, I have come to do the will of the Father for you. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And in his time, the Father himself will embrace us in his ever-loving arms for all eternity. Therefore, it is necessary also for me to say to you this morning, choose you this day whom you will serve. May your answer be, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Shall we pray?